Hello and welcome to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Uh, this is part of my larger series looking at American writers, but um, I'm kind of going to do something special with Lovecraft. If uh, you wanted to get that introduction, go back a few episodes to my episode uh, on Lovecraft's Juvenalia. But in short, I'll be looking at everything I can get a hold of by H.P. Lovecraft, including his stories, his fiction, his revisions, uh, his poetry, um, anything I can get a hold of, um, including his letters. So at some point, we'll be starting to look at his letters as well. So um, in this episode, I'll be looking at The Tomb. So The Tomb was uh, the first story Lovecraft wrote uh, in June of 1917. It was not the first one he published, though. He published... Uh, Dagon and A Reminiscence of Samuel Johnson before this was published, but this was the first he wrote as an adult in 1917. So before talking about the tomb, I wanted to talk about my source material for Lovecraft's fiction, uh, not including, well, I can talk about the revisions too, because I got that from the same source. So my core uh, source is, I think this is a fairly standard book now for uh, people who who read Lovecraft's work, and that is the Leslie Klinger, the new annotated H.P. Lovecraft, um, and that's a big thick book. It's really got a lot of useful commentary in the side margins, not analysis so much, but uh, explanations of references, people who might get mentioned, architecture, whatever. Very well researched, very useful. It also has a really great appendix giving dates of publication, Lovecraft's life, uh, other things. So it's a really, really great source. Unfortunately, it did not, it only included some 20, 20 some stories out of the 60 that Lovecraft wrote. So um, just this year, I guess it was in 2019, uh, within the last year, the new annotated H.P. Lovecraft came out with a second volume, also edited by Leslie Klinger called Beyond Arkham. And uh, this includes Basically, his non-mythos works. The, the big book has, you know, all the major kind of Arkham cycle. I think he called it the Arkham cycle. That's what Lovecraft called it. Works like, uh, you know, at the Mountains of Madness, Whisper in Darkness, Time Out of Space, Dunwich Horror, Call of Cthulhu, Dagon, all those stories. But of course, there's a lot of other stories that are really well known and loved, uh, like... Uh, like uh, Lurking Fear, The Rats in the Wall, Cool Air, The Dream Quest of the Unknown Kadath. A lot of his dream cycle stuff wasn't included in that edition. It would have been even thicker, even though this second volume is only 500 pages, but it would have been kind of unmanageable if he had included all of them. So thankfully, we got the second edition, a second volume of this. So together, you got most of Lovecraft stories. It's not yet complete. Now, I do know there are complete editions out there of Lovecraft's work, usually without this nice editorial commentary. Um, so it's a downside. You can get them, though. I think, you know, you just go to the bookstore. There's probably a copy of something like that there somewhere. Um, but this kind of is most of what anyone who's just kind of coming into Lovecraft casually would really need to, to read. So, what does that leave? Well, um, there's another 20 stories or so published under Lovecraft's name and his revisions. So for that, I have gone to um, H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, The Complete Fiction Omnibus, which is published by Pulp Lit Productions. This is a company that uh, 
has some pulp literature in the public domain uh, edited together into volumes online you can download them for free it's kind of like the lost books company you can do that for free or you can buy a hard copy that they'll produce for you so it's a it's a nice service these these are all public domain so you should be able to look at look at them so that's where i got most of the rest of the stories such as the alchemist which i looked at in the last episode the beast in the cave um the, the temple the street so there's a bunch of stories that aren't in either of the two leslie Klinger volumes that are included here uh, there is a volume in that same, by that same Pulp Lit production that has all the ghost writing and collaborations, the revisions. So that uh, I got also from that source. And actually that doesn't finish it because there were a handful of stories that I couldn't find in either the Klinger or the Complete Fiction Omnibus. So I guess it wasn't as complete as it said. That includes like the Secret Cave, uh, the Mystery in the Graveyard, the Little Glass Bottle, and another story called uh, The Mysterious Ship, which for some reason I couldn't find in that omnibus. So those you have to go to an online website called like HP Lovecraft Writings or something. Basically, it's an online uh, web resource that has a bunch of Lovecraft's writings. Pretty much all of them just in kind of web format. So you can kind of cut and paste or just print out from the website if you want those. That website also has a lot of his nonfiction. Um, of course, there are some edited collections of nonfiction. So without too much work, you can get uh, a fairly complete um, sort of a fairly complete set of his fiction writing and his nonfiction writing, his poetry. They're, they're online. It's all public domain stuff. Uh, my only criticism of the Leslie Klinger editions is it's only another hundred pages or so. To have gotten all the stories because many of the ones not included in either Klinger volume are only add up there there there's quite a few of them i think there's about 20 of them but added they add up to only be about 100 pages so that could have been included in the beyond arkham edition and i think it's a missed opportunity to not have just done all of the fiction published under his name but that aside i think it's a really really wonderful uh, source and I was really excited to get a hold of it over this uh, last winter break so anyways the tomb let's start talking about it all right so my thoughts about this story I think this is a very very complex story and there's it's there's a lot that can be said about it uh, especially on the issue of class and especially on the issue of subcultures one thing I really tried to emphasize in my reading of The Alchemist is the presence of subcultures in the backdrop of so much of Lovecraft's works, um, kind of countercultures, if we will, cultures that don't fit in the mainstream. So in The Alchemist, it was kind of the devil worshiping, the witchcraft subculture, the peasant subculture that kind of embraces magic. And as I was trying to argue with that story, there seems to be not just in this story, but in a lot of Lovecraft's work, a network of knowledge, vernacular knowledge that's connected together. And that is what makes working class people dangerous and powerful. And I think as much as Lovecraft was suspicious of kind of the rabble, suspicious of, of you know, the people outside of New England, immigrants, he did realize their danger. And he wasn't just kind of a, a generic racist. He actually had a fear of some kind of power 
held in the minds and in the actions and in the cultures of working people, uh, especially immigrant people. And you see that in the alchemists, certainly, maybe not immigrants so much, but in the, like the peasant subcultures. Now, in the tomb, we have a different subculture explored, and that's the subculture of sort of the Bacchanalia or the Venetian masquerade, right? So I want to mention here a book that's been very influential to me, and it's Brian Palmer's book called Cultures of Darkness. This book is, I think, brilliant. It's hard to get through. It combines kind of Foucault analysis with Marxist analysis. It is written by a labor historian from Canada, a really good historian. And I think this book does a great job of exploring throughout history, starting from the Middle Ages to the contemporary world, uh, what he calls cultures of darkness. And he sees in the night in cultures that either dwell in the night or are somehow outside. By night, he means here kind of outside the gaze of mainstream culture and mainstream capitalist society. You know, it's just kind of hidden away. So there are hidden subcultures that usually embrace traditions that are radically different from the mainstream. And he looks at everything from witches to uh, slave embrace of like voodoo rituals, uh, special religious traditions embraced by miners and colonial societies, jazz, uh, gangster subcultures, punk, even gets to a little bit of punk, I think towards the end. Um, or am I thinking of the book Lipstick Traces? That, that's, a, that's another good book that kind of looks at subcultures in very profound ways that I think might be interesting to people who are reading um, Lovecraft. So I forget the author of that book, but it's called Lipstick Traces, and it's um, worth checking out for sure. Um, so he even has a chapter in that book on the masquerade, like the Venetian masquerade, the, the Bacchanalia, if you will. Um, and he makes an argument there that by having a mass party, you sort of suppress class realities, right? Because you don't know who each other is, or at least you can play act that you don't know who people are and you can kind of transcend or transgress. In fact, transgression is in the title of the book, um, night travels and transgression, something like that. Um, you can transgress things because you're wearing a mask, right? And he even has a chapter on like the, the Freemasons and he talks about how in your regular life, at work, you might have a boss and you're the worker and, and you have to listen to the boss. But at the, if you're both, both the boss and the worker in a Masonic Lodge, it might be that the worker is actually higher up in the hierarchy of the, of the Freemasons. And so class status get twisted and can get reworked in these kinds of um, uh, subcultures, right? And something like that is going on here in the tomb. I mean, the center of the story of the tomb is a masquerade, some kind of bacchanalia, some kind of, but it's done by elite, but it is a transgressive moment. And I think so much of this story embraces this narrative of transgression, of, of radical alternatives, something we're gonna see again and again in the Call of Cthulhu, for instance, the horror at Red Hook, these are works that really present the danger and the potential of, of alternatives. So I'll probably end up saying something like this almost every episode, but think back if you've read Call of Cthulhu to the, the interview between the police and Castro, the guy who was captured in New Orleans. And he said something like, to paraphrase, 
you know, Cthulhu promises like earthly freedom, right? And that's why we sort of embrace him, right? And the tomb gives us a window into that earthly freedom as we have a young man who seems to be repressed. He's from a certain class status. He's from the upper class. His like options are quite limited culturally, socially, but through what's either a like a mind shifting kind of supernatural thing or just fantasy that leads him to some kind of madness, he is able to totally embrace, you know, cultural alternatives and essentially, you know, engage in the bacchanalia, the thing he's not able to do on his own. Uh, it is in many ways, he's a young man, so it is in many ways like an adolescent sexual fantasy being played out here. Um, and I think that's not an interpretation that's far from the reality of what Lovecraft's trying to get at. All right, with that out of the way, let's uh, jump into this this story. So um, our character, our narrator, is begins the story in a refuge of, for the demented. He begins in, in an asylum, right? And uh, of course, at the time Lovecraft was writing, the asylum was a real important and powerful institution in, in the Western world. And I think we... Uh, can go back to Foucault, whatever problems we might have with his overall analysis. I think he's still very insightful in in dealing with this question of of deviance, social deviance, whether it's sexual or, or criminal or or um, psychological, and and showing how modern societies created institutions, um, you know, institutions of power in order to regulate the these people and try to reform them and make them sort of normal at the end, right? So kind of enforcing a kind of normalcy. Um, that, of course, is just part of the world that Lovecraft was in, where the asylum was a, was a real important and, and threatening institution for many people that could have taken away people's freedoms at, you know, for reasons we would consider ridiculous now, I'm sure. Um, so where he's told, since I'm in this asylum, no one's going to believe what I have to write. And then he goes into a long this dissection of his own kind of imagination and his creativity and his intellectual um, and psychological sensitivity. And there's a line here, uh, quote, it is unfortunate fact that the bulk of humanity is too limited in its mental vision to weigh with patience and intelligence those isolated phenomenons seen and felt only by a psychologically sensitive few. Now, when I wrote that, I circled that right away. Uh, when I reread this anyways, I circled this right away because this is the exact, uh, almost the exact language that Lovecraft uses in his nonfiction essay, Supernatural Horror in Literature, in which he talks about the type of people who are attracted to supernatural horror. And it is essentially those with that sensitivity. And the opening part of that essay, which is really what you need to read, uh, you can kind of skip the rest if you really want to, although I'll try to go through all of it. Um, you know, it's that only some of us have that, we're, are attuned psychologically to horror and, and feel that connection to it. And he claims to be one of those. Um, he's a bit arrogant about it, though. He kind of does use this to set himself apart from, from the others. Saying, men of broader intellect know that there is no sharp distinction between real and the unreal. And all things appear as they do only by virtue of the delicate individual psychic and physical and mental media that were made conscious of them. So he puts himself also in that uh, intellectually broad category. 
Um, and then he goes on to talk about, he gives his name, his name is Jervis Dudley, and he goes on about his curiosity, like many Lovecraft's heroes. Uh, Dudley here, Jervis Dudley, is interested in occult books, quote-unquote ancient and little unknown books. Um, but he also tends to live in the past, something Lovecraft himself tended to do, especially at this time of his life. This, the, the 1910s and into the 1920s are the peak of Lovecraft's Anglophilia. And something I'll get to when we start looking at his nonfiction a little bit more, although there's other hints of it in some of his early fiction from this period, is he very much was an Anglo, um, had this Anglophilia. He uh, thought there was something, especially in 18th century, English culture that he was just profoundly attracted to. He would sometimes sign his letters, God Save the King. He actually, in, I think it's in the second volume of Lovecraft's letters, you actually have a sketch he did of himself as an 18th century gentleman with a powdered wig and everything. So he very much uh, was attracted to, to England. And we'll look at some of his World War I writings later on, although this is a World War I writing, but some of the, the letters he wrote, some of the um, nonfiction he wrote, some of the poems he wrote from that period in, in history, from World War I, in which he expresses this very, very deep admiration for England and English uh, society. Um, and this character also is kind of got this fascination with uh, the past. So in addition to fascinating about the past, uh, Jervis Dudley also explores the nearby woods. And here it gets, we get to supernatural here a little bit when he talks about how he would cavort with dryads, um, which of course are supernatural beings from Greek mythology, kind of agents or, or allies of, of Pan. Uh, obviously the great god Pan is a, is a story that everyone should read uh, by Arthur Meekham, which you know, also has the woods as a, as a prominent location in that story. Uh, maybe we'll talk about that at some point a little bit more. So it's in these woods, it's in these explorations of the woods, that Jervis Dudley finds this, this tomb, the, the tomb of the title. And we get the, the description of it. And we also learn that there's, at this estate where this tomb is dwelling, there is a, there was a mansion years ago. But that mansion burned down in, a, in an electrical storm. And so it's not there anymore. But this is at that site of that old mansion, the Hyde Mansion. So anyways, to be quick about it, uh, Jervis Dudley starts to become increasingly fascinated with the tomb, exploring it, coming back to this tomb to try to learn more and more about it. Now, unfortunately for him, the, the tomb is padlocked, so he can't get in and he tries to get through, but he's not able to. So he starts actually sleeping next to the, the tomb. So this is, of course, objectively very, very odd. And, and strange behavior, which he justifies by being this psychologically sensitive person, this curious person, this person who has this kind of deeper connection to, to some reality, you know, that is, you know, he's sort of special for being able to harness this, this layer of reality, right? Um, now he, back to that very first paragraph, he says, 
Again, I quoted this before, men of broader intellect know that there's no sharp distinction between the real and the unreal, that all things appear as they do only by virtue of the delicate individual psychic and mental media through which we're made conscious of them. So we have here disparities. We have an unreliable narrative, actually, because there's going to be disparities between what uh, people outside see happening and what Jervis Dudley himself relates um, for, but relates what's going on. So um, so the year after he first beheld the tomb, so he's hanging out with this tomb, exploring it, sleeping outside its gate for quite a while. Um, oh, wait, I, I missed one thing. Um, there is rumors. This is back to this question of kind of occult knowledge, which I think is key to some of these stories. Lovecraft writes, mumbled tales of the weird rites and godless revels of bygone years in the ancient hall gave to me a new and potent interest in the tomb, before whose door I would sit for hours at a time each day. Um, so there's rumors, there's stories that that mansion and the people that live there used to engage in weird rites and godless revels, right? So this is that subculture that I started this analysis by introducing, because I think that's the core heart of this story for me at least i think that's the most interesting and important part of this story because the mind switching thing i think he does better in other stories like especially uh beyond the wall sleep he does a little bit better there um this is uh, actually a little bit too ambiguous for maybe for for me to be honest but the the centerpiece of this is this bacchanalia and i think that's that's um that's hinted at here is my point um now he starts to read plutarch's lives and you know these are of course stories of great greek and roman characters some mythical some real and you know it's a class it's it's a part of cla the classical canon that people who study greek and roman society must read but this kind of inspires him he gets inspired by reading the life of theseus and others to kind of dig deeper into this this tomb and to find out more about it but he's not able to get in and this state of affairs lasts for a couple years um i mean he's not the brightest boy maybe because i mean if it takes you a few years to figure out how to get through a padlock door i don't know especially an ancient one but he doesn't have the key right and but he sometimes will see lights inside the tomb and he, his curiosity remains and he continues to sleep outside this 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 tomb and then one time he even sees voices he starts to hear voices in the tomb of these tones and accents i hesitate to speak of their quality i will not speak which is that itself is kind of interesting because he doesn't want to actually talk about what they're saying um, probably because they're engaged in these uh, demonic revels that he mentions before these weird rites Okay, going on. But I may say that they are preserved, they have presented certain uncanny differences in vocabulary, pronunciation, and mode of utterance. Every shade of New England dialect, from the uncouth syllables of the Puritan colonists to the precise rhetoric of 50 years ago, seemed represented in that shadowy colloquy, though it was only later that I noticed the fact. So we have uh, essentially ghosts of some sort, you know, probably just in his mind, maybe, but some kind of relic of the past. This use of language to identify time is another Lovecraftian trope we've seen. Uh, we actually saw it in The Alchemist, where the, 
Charles Le Sorcier spoke this uncouth Latin from the 14th century, and we certainly see it in the case of Charles Dexter Ward, where someone being out of time is given away by the language he uses or the, you know, I, I think in that story, it's actually how he signs is he doesn't know how to sign checks or something. Um, so that that way of exposing someone who's out of time is is played with here. And we've seen it before and we'll see it again in in the story. So this is after he's already an adult. So he's been hanging out with this tomb since a teenager to his age of maturity. Now, after hearing these sounds, he, uh, let me see, he returns home. Yeah, he goes home and he finds a chest in his attic. Um, now, this is, this finding of chests is something that, uh, another thing that kind of Lovecraft does a lot with. Uh, we even seen it in one of his juvenile juvenile stories, the the secret cave, where there's a, a box with some, some gold in it. So he goes back and to the tomb, opens it up and starts to actually see the the different caskets down in this in this tomb. And he sees one Sir Geoffrey Hyde uh, came from Sussex in, in 1640. Uh, and he sees one with basically his name on it. This is the way it's worded. We're not told right away it's his name, but it's 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 worded that way. Um, it's, it's worded in a it's revealed later on that, that it's his name is on it. Um, but it says, in a conspicuous alcove was one fairly well-preserved and untenanted casket adorned with a single name, which brought to me both a smile and a shudder. An odd impulse came me to climb aboard the broad slab, extinguish my candle, and lie down within the vacant box. So he essentially saw his name on this tomb, uh, Jervis Dudley. Or is it just Jervis? I think it's just Jervis. And he starts sleeping in the tomb like a, like a, like a crazy guy. Um, so now... Sometime after this, he starts going back. He, he says he haunts the tomb each night, you know, meaning he's dwelling in the tomb. And he keeps coming back to it. And one of these, during one of these trips, he has this vision, this dream, this time travel episode where he is existing in the past in the Hyde Mansion, which is now fully restored. Um, and he begins to experience this Bacchanalia. Now, his mind is apparently put into this mind of this uh, this person at this party, an ancestor. Um, and he starts to, he's able to fit in. He's able to use the proper language. Quote, my former silent tongue waxed volub with the easy grace of a Chesterfield or the godless cynicism of Rochester. I displayed a peculiar erudition, utterly unlike the fantastic monkish lore over which I had poured in youth and covered the fly leaves of my books with facile, impromptu epigrams, which brought up suggestions of gay, prior, and the sprightliness of the Augustan wit and rhymesters. Um, and, you know, he experiences these Bacchanalian, uh, like, a, like some kind of masquerade party, some kind of uh, essentially a, a, a revelry, embracing all of the sex drunkenness and all the other parts that the subculture that he's that his culture doesn't allow him to partake in right so that's why it's fair to say that this story has elements of being essentially a, a juvenile fantasy of living a life that was closed off to him due to his class due to his um due to his status or his upbringing 
or just his own psychological uh, makeup, which kind of limited him from being part of, of this kind of culture. And certainly, if this is contemporary, right, let's assume this story is contemporary, it seems to be, set in the early 20th century, you already have a mass culture in American cities emerging, which would have allowed him to embrace in some of these libertine freedoms that he seems to enjoy. You have, you got the vaudeville, you got the dance halls, you have, uh, you know, you have that urban culture. But, you know, really for class reasons, that's blocked off to this young man. Um, now, we actually get like, you know, a poem or a song. Okay, here's what he says. One morning at breakfast, I came close to disaster by declaiming in palpably licorice accents an infusion of 18th century Bacchanalian mirth. A bit of Gregorian playfulness never recorded in a book, which ran something like this. And then we get... Four, three, three or four stanzas of uh, of this song, right? Which is pretty bawdy. Uh, let me give a taste of it. Um, Young Harry, propped up just as straight as he's able, will soon lose his wig and slip under the table. But fill up your gobbles and pass them around, better under the table than under the ground. So revel and chafe, a thirstily quaff, under six feet dirt, no less easy to laugh. So this, this change has come over Jervis as a result of sleeping in this temple. And essentially he's become an 18th century man in manner of speech. And his, you know, he starts to act different. It's very much like the case of Charles Dexter Ward, although in that case you actually have someone replacing uh, Charles Dexter Ward. And here you just have somehow like the manners, the, atti like the attitude, the knowledge from a previous generation and plant it into his head. And the parents notice. The parents notice his weird behavior. Yeah, this is actually before the party. I'm sorry. This is, uh, this is just the change in his personality uh, that comes before he sets out and, and witnesses the party that, that's at the climax of the story. So uh, the parents start to basically see that he's becoming a weirdo. Um, he starts to go to the site of the old... Uh, mansion the actual the, the the cellar beneath the mansion he starts to go there he actually shows this the sub cellar to one villager which is another kind of weird uh class dimension to this where he doesn't tell anyone he doesn't tell his family he keeps it, his his night voyages secret from his family but he's got this desire to tell someone so he ends up telling a um, a villager um it says here uh on one occasion, I startled the villager by leading him confidently to a shallow subcellar of whose existence I seem to know in spite of the fact that I have been unseen and forgotten for many generations. So anyways, now we get to the actual party um, moment. He sets out on a, like a dark and stormy night when he says he shouldn't have gone out, but he goes out anyways. And then he sees the mansion fully restored to its earlier status before being destroyed. Um, and that's when he enters into this Bacchanalian party. And so we get all the, the gentry from New England are part of this, this party. All the betters of society come to embrace in what's essentially a, a, a subculture of, of transgression and of rebelling against 
the normal moral standards of the time. Um, quote, with this throng I mingled, though I knew I belonged with the hosts rather than with the guests. Inside the hall were music, laughter, and wine on every hand. Several faces I recognized, though I should have known them better had they been shriveled or eaten away by death and decomposition. Amid a wild and reckless throng, I was the wildest and most abandoned. Gay blasphemy poured in torrents from my lips, and in my shocking sallies, I heeded no God, no law of God, man, or nature. Um, and as this happens, he doesn't go into too much detail here. We're left to imagine what kind of debauchery he gets involved in but he he says he's the worst right he's the the wildest and most abandoned of all the people in this um this celebration and with that he experiences the lightning strike that burned down the the mansion originally and so he kind of witnesses this event from the past and takes part in it all right so after this event he he wakes up and he's in the presence of his his, his parents, his father, and they're really worried about him now. Um, and they find this box. Uh, is it the same box where he finds a key? But anyways, there's a, a little mannequin, a little miniature guy uh, with the initials J.H. Jervis thinks it, it's him, but actually Jervis seems to be uh, this guy who lived in the past, right? Someone... Jervis Hyde, who was once part of this of, of this Hyde family, you know, part of the Hyde mansion, um, and he somehow after because he, he burned, he burned in that fire, and his ashes got scattered, so he wasn't buried in the tomb with the rest of the family, right? That's why that Jervis is empty, and, and that's why Jervis Dudley wants to sleep there, is he wants to sort of fulfill that you know he, he's being taken over by Jervis Hyde and that's why he's being driven to to sleep there and this uh this event finally leads him to his commitment into an asylum now the real revolution of the resolution of the story is uh Hiram the the servant of this Dudley family promises to bury Jervis Dudley when he dies, which is suggested to be quite shortly after the, the the writing of this memoir, will be buried in that slot in the tomb. So that's the story. Um, so what do I think about this overall? Well, I I think it's a I think it's a pretty great story to be honest. Um, it's one of my favorites of his. It doesn't really deal with issues of race and hereditary the way heredity the way maybe the beast in the cave or the alchemists seem to begin to do this seems to but instead this seems to deal more with class um, elements and and transgressional cultures which i think is one big aspect of lovecraft's story now normally lovecraft will place these transgressive cultures into the working class right into like the cthulhu cult you know the Eskimos, the Pacific Islanders, and the mulatto seamen and things—they're going to embrace that that radical subculture. Or in the horror of Red Hook, you see the same thing. So you often have this these radical alternative subcultures, which are transgressive, seeking some kind of earthly freedom. 
but it's usually to the working class and and it's not as often that he gives it to his protagonists in this way right um now let us go back and see how it's worded here uh when he's at the party when he goes about in that that stormy night sees the mansion restored he says i heeded no law of god man or nature now this is again very very similar to what castro says when he's interrogated in the call of cthulhu that what the cthulhu cult embraces is this kind of transgressive morality some kind of earthly freedom right and yes at some level we have a, a story of an adolescent here who is confined by his class his status his overbearing family i mean obviously the family is embarrassed by him uh, fearful of the impression he's given on others and that's got to be one reason he gets locked up at the end right he's an embarrassment to the family by the end you know he's sleeping out by a tomb right um, but you know but the only way he can f be free is through these fantasies through this through his imagination and that's how the story begins of course is with his uh, description of the power of his imagination his dancing with the dryads his interest in occult knowledge his searching in the woods um, his strange fascination with the tomb now at a supernatural level of course the story is on the surface supernatural it seems that Jervis Hyde has taken over Jervis Dudley's mind and body to some degree to get him to be buried in the tomb, right? Maybe it's a reincarnation, maybe it's just a mind transfer kind of thing, uh, you know, but this, in, in that sense, you, you do have kind of a, an ancestry coming, coming back to haunt you in a way, like in the case of Charles Dexter Ward, there's a, a lot of the same kind of highlights that you see in the case of Charles Dexter Ward in here, right? Um, like the curious, curious young man who gets taken over by the, the villain, right? That's the, the same, same sort of plot here. Um, so anyways, that's what I want to say about the tomb. The tomb seems to convince me that Lovecraft from early in his career is, his career as a writer, um, is looking, is having some kind of dialogue with with subcultures and some kind of dialogue with, with some kind of quest for for earthly freedom and and i think it's it's hinted at very subtly in the alchemist but it comes out on the forefront much more strongly in in the tomb um, now lovecraft's use of language seemed to condemn this um, blasphemy he calls it that he you know he uses pretty harsh language for it gay blasphemy uh, the wildest and most abandoned, wild and reckless throng. These are the types of words he uses to describe the this party he goes to in the way he or his ancestor, whatever this Jervis Hyde, um, you know, the way he engaged in these, these this bacchanalia. Um, but you know, I don't. You know, does Lovecraft on some level confess that this earthly freedom? is an admirable thing or something dangerous um my tendency from reading his letters is to believe that he thinks this is a very very dangerous and powerful thing powerful but dangerous so he doesn't just deny it as uh this is just vulgar a vulgar culture he sees it as a fundamental threat to something now what is that uh, i think we're going to have to read a little bit more lovecraft before we can fully identify what that is especially his letters his, especially his letters to uh, robert e howard go are really a discourse on on freedom and, and history 
So, um, yeah, that's going to be it for now. So the next episode, we will look at uh, Dagon, which was written around the same time. A very, very different story. One that seems to fit more comfortably in the Arkham mythos kinds of stories, dealing with a, an ancient kind of god and old cults and, and all that kind of stuff. So um, that was written in... July 1917, just one month after the tomb, uh, but it was published much earlier in November 1919. So next up, I'll be looking at 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 Dagon. So um, that's it for now. So thanks for listening. Let me know what you think of the the tomb, and you know, leave your comments below or send me an email at hundredpagescast at gmail.com, and I'll see you next time with my thoughts on Dagon. <laughs>